The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Philippians 2, 1-11 is our scripture this morning, and today's passage is one of the most well-known and beloved passages of the good news of what God has done for sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ. In fact, verses 5-11 through 11 are normally considered by scholars and, and um, Bible commentators as a hymn, perhaps one of the earliest Christian songs that the first century church would have sung. The song about what Christ has done. But this text, at the heart of it, contrasts two different things, all right? So I don't want you to, to lose these. These are the two contrasts of the, the passage. On the one hand, we have selfish ambition. On the other hand, we have self-emptying sacrifice. All right, so selfish amb- ambition that is driven out of sinful desires. And then sacrificial self-emptying which is an incredible act of grace. These are the two contrasts in our passage today. Self-emptying sacrifice is seen for the wonderful grace that it is, especially when contrasted with selfish ambition. Now, to help us follow this passage's argument, I've come up with four statements about Jesus and a crown. So if you're a note taker, these are the four statements, Jesus and a crown. And they'll help us understand what Jesus' relationship to a crown means for us. So the title of today's sermon, Jesus, the Cross, and You. And here's number one of the four. Number one, Jesus laid aside his crown of glory, which he deserved due to his perfections. And we'll see that in verses five through seven. So look with me in God's word, Philippians chapter two, beginning in verse five. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now the following verses modify Christ Jesus. So verse 6, Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men. Theologians typically refer to this passage as the kenosis passage because of the Greek word kanao, which means to empty. And though there's much debate, what exactly did Jesus empty himself of? What does that mean to empty himself? Well, we know it cannot mean that he relinquished his nature as God. He cannot cease to be God. God can never cease to be God by definition. But it does mean a way that he humbled himself. In fact, if you have the NIV translation in front of you, it really smooths this over. In verse 7, the NIV writes, rather, he made himself nothing. Thus explaining what the metaphor means. As I worded it, Jesus set aside his crown of glory, the eternal glory that he deserves, the eternal honor that is his by right, he set aside. My grandfather fought in World War II in the United States Army. He was stationed in Germany there. Uh, Years later, in his 80s, he passed away. And I remember when we gathered for his funeral, uh, we, were, we were all there, packed out. It was one of those rainy days where you're outside. And as a veteran of the United States Army, they conducted what you've maybe seen at a funeral when a former soldier or a veteran passes. The 
armed forces come forward and there's a time where they salute to the flag and the flag has come and it's folded with incredible care. And then it was handed to the widow, which in this case was my grandma. Now what I'm about to say did not happen. But imagine if in that moment of somber sadness but joy and reverence, in this heart-wrenching and important moment, imagine that right as the soldiers handed that perfectly sealed triangle of a flag to my grandma, imagine someone ran onto the scene in front of all of our family members and slapped the flag out of her hands and spit on it. In that moment, they would be doing something that would bring horrendous heartache to a moment of reverence. They would be bringing great sadness and desecration to a moment that was sacred and somber. That maybe helps us grasp to a much smaller extent what it means when the God who created the universe, Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus did, came in the form of a human. Taking something infinitely glorious and setting aside all of its glory, In fact, Jesus spent his life mainly maligned. And yet the rocks could have cried out. Gordon Fee explains it well when he says, verse 7, Christ did not empty himself of anything. He simply emptied himself, meaning he didn't receive the glory he deserves. Now, you might be thinking, I would never dishonor something so worthy of honor. I would never desecrate a moment so sacred. I would never take something glorious, beautiful, and true and malign it. But perhaps this is where it helps to remember one of the many ways we should understand sin in all its multifaceted horror. John Piper helps when he explains sin this way. What is sin, he says? The glory of God not honored. The holiness of God not reverenced. The greatness of God not admired. The power of God not praised. The truth of God not sought. The wisdom of God not esteemed. The beauty of God not treasured. The goodness of God not savored. The faithfulness of God not trusted. The promises of God not believed. The commandments of God not obeyed. The justice of God not respected. The wrath of God not feared. The grace of God not cherished. The presence of God not prized the person of God not loved. Therefore, all of us have desecrated the most wonderful, glorious, and beautiful reality there is. The reality of God. Romans 1 tells us repeatedly that humanity has exchanged the incorruptible beauty of the Creator for the corruptible passing worth of creaturely things. It tells us that we've taken what we know And we've denied its wonder and splendor. But what makes this passage so startling is that Jesus willfully set aside his crown of glory. Look again in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, form means in very nature God or truly God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That phrase might be confusing. It means to clutch to something at all cost. Have you ever noticed how we may clutch to something at all cost? A way that we used to be thought of, a way that we used to look, 
a way that we used to be good at something. And as that starts to erode, we start to cling to it tightly at all cost. We don't want to any longer not be seen as the vision of ourselves we once had. Jesus was eternally glorious, and yet he came to be born in a manger, taken on the form of a servant, self-emptying at all cost. Now look in Philippians 2, verse 3, and it may help you see the contrast. Remember, Jesus comes in self-emptying, but we tend to be known, verse 3, by selfish ambition. Kerry Newhoff helped me understand that this week. He was writing a blog, particularly to those who are leaders in the church, but it helps warn all of us of the dangers of selfish ambition. He writes, here are 12 ways you may know you're motivated by selfish ambition. First, your personal sense of worth goes up and down with opportunities ahead of you. This week, my wife and I were reading about the fact that self-reliance can both manifest itself as arrogance or as despair. Because you are looking at your abilities and therefore if things go well, you are overly arrogant and if you're afraid and they seem hopeless, you're overly despairing because ultimately yourself is on the line. Therefore, number two, he writes, failure is terrifying. Three, you think you're the deal. Four, you use people to get where you want to go. Five, you take the credit. Six, you strive for breadth of exposure. Seventh, you're always thinking about the next thing. Eight, you compare yourself to others. Nine, it's hard to say no to any opportunity. Ten, you feel entitled. Eleventh, the need to win is greater than the need to love. And twelfth, Newhoff concludes, you're always insecure. So self-emptying contrasted with selfish ambition. But the Washington Post tried to illustrate this a few years ago when they did an experiment with the violinist Joshua Bell. Uh, if you don't know him, Joshua Bell is a Grammy award-winning, world-renowned violinist. I love string instruments and I've listened to many things that Joshua Bell has played. But the Washington Post did an experiment with him. They dressed him in nonchalant garb. He wore blue jeans, a casual t-shirt, and a ball cap, and he played outside the subways in the city of Washington where many homeless people will play instruments all the time. But when Joshua Bell played there, he's a world-renowned Grammy-winning violinist, and he was playing a $3.5 million violin. It's the 1713 Gibson X Huberman Stradivarius. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds impressive. <laughs> he was playing that for 40 minutes, outside the subways in Washington, D.C., and 1,100 people walked by, and only seven even stopped to listen to him. When he finished playing his pieces, you can watch the video on YouTube this afternoon, no one applauded. No one commended him. Afterwards, Joshua Bell was interviewed, and he said this, it was a strange feeling that people were, um, ignoring me. <laughs> the funny thing about Joshua Bell is normally if you want to hear him play, you have to pay several hundred dollars and sit in an expensive seat in the Kennedy Center. <laughs> but here he was outside the subway and people ignored him like he was just a regular person. Imagine what it was like for God to leave glory and be a regular person on earth. This is what the text means when it says he emptied himself. He set aside his crown of glory deserved because of his infinite perfections 
But the text is even crazier still. Number one, he set aside his crown of glory, which he deserved. But now number two, he took our crown of thorns, which we deserved. Look now in verse 8 of Philippians 2. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself, the idea is further, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As if it isn't startling enough that God would veil his perfections in human flesh, now even worse, he humbles himself to not just any kind of death, but death in crucifixion. Death on a cross was a shame even to the Jews. They understood that as a very shameful, ignominious way to die. But what it meant to the Romans is expressed by Cicero, who wrote, Far be the very name of the cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, or the ears of Roman citizens. It was such a horrendous death, it was beneath a Roman, and yet it's the death that God chose to die. The potency of the phrase is, clear in the text when it says not just death, not just any death, death on a cross. I wish I was more capable in my verbiage of articulating how staggering of a twist this is, how shocking of a death it is. But of course, we can't express it. It's truly beyond our comprehension that the infinitely worthy God would be removed of all dignity and all clothing as he stumbles up a hillside with a rugged cross on his back for sinners like us. But think of something that you think of as sacred. Think of something that you think of that deserves to be treated with respect and honor. And instead of being treated with love and care, it's callously and casually destroyed. Well, you don't have to think much. Just watch the news. (laughs) This is happening regularly with human bodies and with places all over our country. Things that actually do have value are being destroyed. But this is what God chose to do. And not because he had a responsibility to it. He's not paying anything he owes. He did so to pay for what we owe. We saw Isaiah 53 on the screen earlier. It begins in verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, Jesus' incalculable sacrifice displayed God's love for the lowly. 1 Peter 2.21 says it this way, He himself bore in his body our sins on the cross. But why did Jesus come down from glory and go down even further to the devastation of the cross? The answer is Jesus went that low so that he could meet us, so that he could bring us up with him through faith. C.S. Lewis understood this, so in his book, Miracles, he has a chapter called The Grand Miracle. It's a longer quote. But he wrote, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further into the very roots and seabed of the nature he created. But he goes down to come up again, bringing the ruined world with him. One picture is a strong man who has to stoop lower and lower to get underneath some complicated weight. He must stoop in order to lift. 
He must disappear so that he can reappear and march off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. One may think of a diver, Lewis writes, who reduces himself to nothing and then glancing in midair is gone with a splash, vanished rushing down through the green and warm water into black and cold water, down into the pressure of the death-like region of ooze, of slime and decay, but then up again. Back to color and light, his lungs bursting, he holds in his hands the dripping, precious thing he went down to recover. Down below where it lay colorless in the dark, he lost his color too. So you see, Jesus laid aside his crown of glory, which he deserves, but he took our crown of thorns, which we deserve, so that number three, Jesus could receive his crown of exaltation which he earned in his atonement. Look now in verse 9, Philippians 2. He laid aside a crown of glory, he took a crown of thorns, but now he receives the crown of crowns. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, there's a reality that is right now. Jesus is the name above every name right now. And there's the reality that will be in the future for everyone. Everyone will confess that that name is above all names. In fact, Jesus Christ is Lord is the summary statement of the church. We gather because there is a Lord over everything. As I've put it here, we delight in Jesus over everything. Pastor David Platt was overseas um, and he was in a country where there was a, a temple outside and as he was there, these different priests from different religions were outside the temple gates and they were debating how one can get to God or, or how they can be right with the divine. And Platt said to them, it sounds like you guys are saying that there's a mountain and at top of that mountain is... God, or, or whatever your name for him or her is. And religion is like man's ways to try to get up the mountain. And we can all take different paths, but we'll all make it to the top. And they said, that's exactly what we're trying to say. And Platt said, well, I have good news for you. The person at the top of the mountain didn't wait for us to try and fail to make it up the mountain. <laughs> he came down the mountain so that he could carry people on his back and bring them back up. And he's the only way up. You see, that's what this text is telling us. There is an exclusive yet eternally wonderful truth. You can't make it up the mountain. But the person at the top came down. And now he can bring you up. That is why he, the, he is the name above every name. And that is why he alone is Lord. This text tells us that Jesus laid aside his crown of glory. He took our crown of thorns and he has received his crown of exaltation. But even more glorious, he will share, number four, his crown of victory. Jesus shares his crown of victory. You see, the gospel is not just a truth to be believed. It's a truth to be obeyed. Galatians 2.20 says it this way, I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Jesus Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
Did you notice that I skipped over verses 1 through 4? I didn't forget they were there. (laughs) You see, verses 1 through 4 are only possible if you believe and cherish verses 5 through 11. If you love the Christ who set aside his crown of glory and took your crown of thorns and has a crown of exaltation, then you can share his crown of victory. And it's not just a truth you believe, it's a truth you obey, and it changes how you interact with everyone and everything. So would you now look in verse one of Philippians two. If there is any encouragement, are you encouraged that Jesus set aside his crown? If there's any comfort from love, does it comfort you to know that Jesus loves you? Any participation in the Spirit? Have you received the joy of the Spirit dwelling in you? Any affection and sympathy? Does it move you to know that Jesus took sympathy on you? Well, if so, then verse 2. Complete my joy and be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord in one mind. Depending on the translation in front of you, verse 1 has four ifs. If you have the NASB, you'll read if, 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 if. And then verse 2 has four sames. Same, 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 same. If you've received the love of Christ, then how could you not have the same mind? And would not that same mind free you from selfish ambition when you've received self-emptying grace? Look now in verse 3. If God gave up everything to save those who have nothing, then verse 3, how could we do anything from selfish ambition or conceit? Should we not in humility count others more significant than ourselves? The word count means esteem, regard, or consider. Of course, in reality, people's lives may have much similarity. It's not saying that some people are better than others. It's saying that you treat other people's concerns as higher than your own. Is that not what Jesus did for us? So count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interest, which comes naturally for us all, but also to the interest of others. See, the gospel is something you believe but it's also something you obey. The truth is something you come to know, but it's also something you do. Jesus totally transforms you by cherishing and clinging to that old rugged cross. And if you do so, you will have a countercultural virtue. Did you know that humility is not popular? (laughs) And that it never was. In the Roman era in which Jesus was crucified, The word humility was not listed in the category of virtues, but shortcomings. Humility, of course, is not false modesty like, I'm no good and I hate myself. No, humility is a proper estimation of self in light of ultimate reality. The reality of Christ. And if we have that, it not just changes us counterculturally, it changes us relationally. The impacts of this are so many, and I can't get into all of them, but let me list a few. Let me talk about how humility changes us at the civilization level. At the societal level, people have a tendency to use people. And yet humility tells us to look after the interests and needs of others. This can be done, by the way, very subtly. I'm going to 
frustratingly open a can of Pandora's box, and then right when we get it, I'm going to close the lid. Ready? (laughs) One of the things we talk about in our culture is tolerance. But have you noticed the intolerance of tolerance? And have you noticed that the people who spread tolerance are actually people who lust for power? And so they use the term tolerance so that they can advance their own control with a Trojan horse of tolerance that is intolerant of anyone who opposes them. You see? See, selfish ambition works even on the societal level. I'll close the lid and you can ask me more about that later. (laughs) But it also works on the domestic level. Think of how selfish ambition happens. Let's just use an example like marriage. You get married, you've only been married a couple of years, and you start to notice that that other person is selfish. (laughs) And you have a conversation with them about that. And you know what? They notice that you're selfish too. (laughs) And then you start to realize that both of you are bringing sin into the marriage. One of the best books that Stephanie and I read, and we read it together, It's titled, When Sinners Say I Do. And Dave Harvey wrote it to just punch right into that reality. Here are two people who come together in a home, in a life, who have selfish ambition. Now, how do you change selfish ambition? I mean, there's all sorts of strategies you can find online. And those strategies may temporarily alleviate the problem. Here's what it's like. Maybe I've used this illustration before. Imagine a a mother bird in, in, in a nest on a branch high above the ground. And one day that mother bird leaves. And the baby bird goes to stumble to the edge of the nest and falls out to the ground. And at the ground, the baby bird cannot fly. And a fox starts to run towards the bird. Now the bird looks around and notices there's a hole in the bottom of the tree. And the bird runs to scurry into that hole at the bottom of the tree. That may work for a while, but eventually the bird is to come out and the fox would come back. What must the bird learn to do to eventually escape the fox? What's the answer? Fly. Now, you could fight selfish ambition with temporary strategies that are like a hole at the bottom of the tree. But in order for you to ever change, you have to learn to soar. And you learn to soar when your heart is captured with the one person eternally worthy of a crown of praise who set it aside in self-emptying for sinners like us. If you are captured by that, selfish ambition will die because you'll finally learn to fly. See, this text is trying to point us to something truly beautiful so that it can transform our eternity and our present. Humility is a countercultural virtue. Humility is also a relational virtue, but humility, finally, is a vertical virtue. Flannery O'Connor has written a lot of short stories that have helped me better picture humility, but Karen Swallow Pryor was writing about some of her stories, and she explained the etymology of the word humility, meaning what the word originally meant. Sometimes that's helpful, sometimes it's not. In this case, it is. The word humility and its sister humble is from the root word ground or earth. Eugene Peterson explains, this is the Genesis origin of who we are, dust. (laughs) Dust that the Lord God used to make us a human being. If we cultivate a lively sense of our origin and nurture a sense of continuity with it, who knows? We may also acquire humility. The person of humility then is both literally and figuratively grounded. 
They have an accurate assessment of who they are in relationship to their eternal creator. And the staggering part of this text is that eternal creator set aside the glory he actually deserves for people like us who deserve none of it. You remember how Romans 5 goes? While we were still weak, while we were powerless, just at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For God demonstrates his love towards us in this way. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not when we were good enough, when we were sinners. You see, the truth that changes us is the self-emptying grace of God. That's Jesus, the cross, and you. Jesus set aside his crown of glory. Jesus took your and my crown of thorns. Jesus received his crown of exaltation, but now Jesus will share his crown of victory. Jesus came to earth in humility, and he went to the cross in humiliation, but now he has received exaltation and offers it to you. But I do have to challenge you in love today, if you're here, and you've never come to Jesus Christ in saving faith. This text gives us a glorious picture of what Jesus historically accomplished that you can receive and be saved. But it also implicitly has a warning. If you refuse to humble yourself and receive the humility that Christ gave you for your salvation, and you stubbornly say, no, I will use other people. I will win at all costs. I will create a great name for myself. And you give in to the sin and sickness of selfish ambition. Do you know you will still bow one day anyway? Only then it'll be too late. That day when you bow and confess Jesus Christ is Lord, it'll be the last time you ever see him. That's why this passage is meant to show you him before it's too late. You see, humans, when we lord over other people, we lord over other people. But the king of kings and lord of lords gave up his lordship to save undeserving people. Why would you rebel against a king who wears a crown of thorns? That's a humble king. And a king who gave his life for your sin. So turn from him and trust in Jesus and know salvation and confess he's Lord today. But may that truth shape all of us. Jesus and the cross and us. Let's pray together this morning. God, how could anyone neglect such a great salvation? Free us of the pride that causes us to ignore the glory of Jesus Christ. Remind us today that sin is not just some actions we do, but it's a heart posture underneath them that willfully overlooks the glory of God. Lord, but if we have received the wonderful goodness of Jesus' salvation, if we have comfort, if we have love, if we've received sympathy, how could we not also treat each other with the same mindset to put aside selfish ambition, to be freed from that slavery, and instead to seek the good of others, to put it above our own? Lord, I thank you that our salvation is encapsulated in this passage. And Lord, I pray that the gospel would be a truth that we cherish and that also it would be a life that we live. 
In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.